Welcome to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast, episode 41. Today we meet with Paramal Kopardakar, better known as PK, NASA's senior technologist for the air transportation system and principal investigator for unmanned aerial systems traffic management, also known as UTM. We discuss his work involving the first A in NASA, aeronautics, and right now, NASA, the FAA, and several partners are conducting a national flight campaign called UTM Technology Capability Level 2, using their tools at six test sites around the country, reminding us all that NASA is with you when you fly. So here is PK. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. How did you get to NASA? How yeah. did you end up in Silicon Valley? Yeah, you know, it's in- interesting how I got to NASA. I uh, was doing my PhD in industrial engineering and wanted to look for a dissertation topic. So mm-hmm. I, I was uh, attending a conference on system safety in Cincinnati, and I went to a talk where they talked about air traffic management, airspace operations, and how complex it is. And how many pieces of equipment, how many aircraft they handle, and what kind of challenges they have. So that motivated me to pick a uh, dissertation topic uh, focused on uh, air traffic management uh, for my PhD. And then after that, um, I have got motivated to, to continue to work in that area because that was so exciting at the time. Uh, and uh, FAA's as contractor was looking, so we I, I actually was hired by FAA contractor. Okay. And uh, then I worked uh, for FAA contractor uh, on FAA site in Atlantic City for 10 years. Oh, wow. And then uh, FAA hired me uh, in 2002, and they sent me to NASA as part of the technology transition okay. program between FAA and NASA at the time. And then I switched from FIA to NASA in 2004. You know, so I'm I'm all about basically the first A in um, NASA, which is aeronautics, and one <laughs> of the parts of uh, aeronautics is uh, airspace operations. I was going to say, people think of air traffic controllers. Obviously, the FAA is the first thing that comes to people's minds. That makes sense. And then when you start saying like throwing NASA into there, like I think most people in the American public would be like, like how? How is that? Why NASA's space and like rockets? What does that have to do with air traffic control? Certainly, yeah. The first A in NASA is aeronautics, and aeronautics we do foundational aeronautics uh, uh, focused on aircraft wing shapes, propulsion, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Uh, but in addition to that, we also focus on airspace operations. How do you make sure that entire airspace operations? Um, are safe, efficient, we have high throughput, reduced delays, reduced mm-hmm. congestion, promote access to the new entrants in airspace, such as commercial space transportation or unmanned aircraft systems, drones, yeah. um, a lot of other new entrants that are coming up. You know, People are also imagining personal air vehicles. So how do you make sure that we enable access to all the new entrants in the airspace in a safe and efficient manner? That's what aerospace operations uh, is really focused on. And so it seems like you started working on the, these 
big thoughts of how to improve air traffic management. When you're doing your PhD, working for the FAA, they send you over to NASA to help work on some collaborations, and, and you're like, ah, I think I'll stay. Yeah, so. it was, a, absolutely. It was a reverse technology transfer, so to speak. You know, typically, it, uh, research you know, goes from NASA to FAA, and in, in our case, I, I switched over. So a lot of my FAA friends still joke around. They say, well, you know, even though you're working for NASA, you're still doing FAA-type work. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then did you move from Atlantic City to, yeah, so to we, the Bay Area? Then? Yeah, we moved from Atlantic City to the Bay Area. My wife also had finished recently, at the time, a fellowship. Uh, so she got a job here, and then uh, we moved here. So that was kind of exciting time. Oh, excellent. So when you were when you first came over, was it still working on like air traffic control as we know it today with airplanes and with um, different airports, or were you already starting to dabble into unmanned aircraft and drones? Yeah, and so that was 2002, and uh, we were still focused on improving uh, current operations and, and enabling basically better access and efficiency for the operators at the airports yeah. or new entrants. We were also looking at different models of um, air ground traffic management. So, But that was all focused on the then manned aviation primarily. Yeah. yeah. And I know obviously drones is a little bit of a loaded term because I, I mean, I think even when I was a kid, people had, you know, radio controlled airplanes. And I'm like the difference between that and one of these some of these quadcopters. I mean, they call these drones, but it's still no different. It's still a human using a remote control. The point where it becomes like a drone or interested in the unmanned is some, some of the autonomous aspects. To me, at least in my head, that seems to be the major difference. Because just running a quadcopter is one thing, but now when the quadcopter is following some software or an algorithm to run itself, that's where it gets more interesting and complicated. Yeah, and that's where it gets really interesting. Typical cliches, all the cool stuff happens in jet planes and toys. And now <laughs> you're beginning to see that migrating into aviation where you are seeing more autonomy, more GPS-based autonomous operations um, mm -hmm. uh, through drones because there is no pilot you know, involved on the vehicle or inside the vehicle. So it's done through remote pilot or fully autonomous. So that's what is getting really exciting and that enables more transformation of uh, aviation operations. You can see a long future. Mm -hmm. Of course, we had, to we had to make sure that these operations are safe. Uh, but um, nonetheless, it enables us to start looking at how autonomous operations will take place inside airspace. And obviously, it's like, I mean, I think of self-driving cars, well, which have you know LIDAR sensors and cameras and different things that can help let it understand its environment. Obviously, you can put some of that stuff on a drone um, so it knows where it is in 3D space, but it seems like, I don't know, like with too many of them or things moving really fast, you almost need to have them interconnected to each other. They need to know exactly what that other one is doing, almost like a hive, or else it's just it's going to be really difficult to work. Yeah, so the vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication, or we call detect and avoid, mm -hmm. is an interesting thing that uh, we are also learning from what's happening on the ground transportation uh, in that space. 
but as you start to scale these operations, you would need things uh, that are similar to what's happening in autonomous cars. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting part of the drones is if the larger the drone, the drone has a capacity, what we call swap, size, weight, and power to handle okay. the sensor packs and and things like that. Here, if the drone is smaller, 55 pound and below, and it's carrying some kind of a package, then you're trying to obviously optimize the configuration of the vehicle such that you are able to carry more goods or offer services yeah. of, or from in the form of payload. So the size, weight, and power is somewhat restricted for the smaller drones. So interesting part of all that is now so we are miniaturizing the sensors and mm -hmm. ability to detect wires in the airspace or detect other manned aircraft or unmanned aircraft in the airspace. You know, going back to drones and even in the commercial space where, or, you know, the consumer space, really, where people, you know, for Christmas or for their birthdays or holidays, you know, they get these quadcopters uh, and people take them, they start flying them around. But what is it that's anybody who's getting some of these things, what, what should they know about in terms of like, like their rules or things that they sure, should or shouldn't sure. be doing that? I mean, most people you think, hey, oh, cool, I got a toy. Let me play with it. Yeah, so th that's the fun part of this, right? So now it's opening up uh, for the masses. But there are obviously these are safety critical items and because totally. once you go into the airspace, you could accidentally cause some trouble. So the first thing you need to do is register them. FAA has a very good website to register these. And FAA has done a remarkable job figuring out how to register quickly um, and efficiently. Uh, second thing you should do is uh, you, FAA has another app called Before You Fly. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another one called No Before You Fly. So okay. you can use these apps and figure out what airspace you can actually operate these drones as a hobbyist and what airspace you can't. There are a number of rules, and then you need to follow those rules and guidelines that have been established by FAA. And if you are a member of... Um, Academy of Model Aircraft, they have certain guidelines okay. as well, so you can follow those. Uh, but it's important to follow those rules, like five miles away from the airport, less than 400 feet, not on top of people and things <laughs> like that. So that's very important um, that you follow those rules to maintain the safety of other operators or other people that are around, surrounding you, as well as your own drone, you know. And some of the tech that you're working on now, like staying in the, you know, air traffic control research world. So what you're working on is kind of the, what does air traffic control look like for these drones and and, and even being automated, yeah. putting in people putting in requests. So we'll, we'll kind of what, talk a little bit about. Yeah. Some of so stuff. one of the uh, restrictions today is visual line of sight. Okay. So. Whether you're a hobbyist or commercial, largely you have to follow visual line of sight. You have to see yeah, it. You have to see the drone, right, yeah. to be able. Now we are looking at future where the drones, the vehicle technologies themselves can get to beyond visual line of sight because you can track yourself better. You can uh, basically do your planning better. There, There is a battery capacity to go beyond visual line of sight mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, and you can perhaps detect uh, um, wires and other obstacles in the airspace. Then the question comes, what happens when you have multiple operations going beyond visual line of sight? How yeah. do you know of each other's existence? So that requires a system, what we characterize as unmanned aircraft system traffic management. So 
you publish uh, simplistically, you publish your uh, area of operation or flight plan mm -hmm. and keep track of um, what's happening in the airspace and the, the tra vehicle gets tracked and enters what's happening in that airspace. So you know, not only you know where you are intending to operate, but you know where you are at the time uh, of operation, exactly uh, your location at the time of operation. And then you can keep track of how the vehicle is progressing. So fundamentally, you want to make sure that you are where you said you are going to be. <laughs> yes. Right? So that avoids uh, basically conflicts with other vehicles. Okay. As well as you avoid any geofence areas. It could be an airspace five miles away from the airport that you need to stay away, or a big building and things like that. Any obstacles in this kind? Does also weather get added in? Weather some of is this? definitely a big, a big thing. What one of the things we have learned over flight test multiple times is that. These vehicles, because they are a little bit lighter than helicopters and general aviation, which operate in this airspace typically, mm -hmm. uh, they are uh, lighter, so they are more susceptible to changes in the wind, and they get bounced oh, around. Right, and, especially higher up, where uh, you get yeah. gusts of wind. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then sometimes you see thermal effects, which is the uh, air is lighter because it's hot, and then all of a sudden you get headwind and your capacity to go faster gets limited because you spend more energy in staying in the air because air is thin and then on top of that uh, you have a headwind so it's it's something that we are learning very interesting effects uh, on these smaller vehicles and it has implications on, on knowing basically what's in the airspace what constraints exist whether is one of them other operations is another one and staying clear and you've ran some tests actually at airports, I believe, like Charlotte, but also at Reno. What exactly are you are, are you just implementing some of these ideas and testing out the software to see if it works? Yeah. So fundamentally, what we are after is uh, five basic principles, which is uh, every end every operator has to authenticate to enter in the airspace. Second mm -hmm. is every operator has full awareness of constraints in the airspace, so other operations or any geofence areas or bad weather patches. Yeah. Third one is on the drones avoid each other. Drones avoid manned aviation. One of the requirements for drones to operate is that manned aviation has a priority. Uh, and then okay. the last one is public safety drone has a priority over all of them. So when we did the test, we looked at these principles and said, how do we actually make it, convert it into a system? So we allowed uh, multiple operators to go beyond visual line of sight. It was a combination of beyond visual line of sight and line of sight operations. So they connected through a common protocol that we established. Okay. Uh, so the first one could connect and the second one could see that there is a pre-planned area of operation and the third one and fourth one and so on and so forth. So they could plan their areas of operations staying clear of each other's airspace. So that was the first layer of basically safety. And then they there is a tracking involved. So you track all the vehicles and make sure that they stay within the airspace that they said they were going to be. And if there is a deviation, we also studied what happens when there is a deviation from planned area of operation. It's like defensive driving. Uh, mm -hmm. One vehicle drifts yeah. But then you need to make sure the other vehicles get alert right away, the operators get alert right away, and they stay clear. 
because you need to, even though you didn't cause the conflict, you need to make sure that you don't get hurt in that process, <laughs> just like defensive driving. So we studied that. We also studied what happens when we need to push a priority access for public safety. If there is a lost hiker or search and rescue or anything like that, oh, that is yeah. a public. So we need to be able to send messages to everybody right away and say, please clear the airspace. You know. Oh, so cool. we studied these hypothetical situations uh, to push the limits of the system and use cases to say how this U.S. traffic management will actually support applications, uh, use cases, and at the same time maintain safety. It's all about balancing uh, basically safety while promoting the innovation. So this, uh, so what we'd like to call is uh, we are innovating relentlessly and enabling a, a innovation in aviation while respecting its tradition of safety. And in early 2017, there's going there's going to be, or there was, <laughs> depending on when this airs, um, another test in Reno. Yes. yes. Yeah. So we conducted a, a test in Reno where we had five different um, operations happening at the same time. We had mm -hmm. 14 collaborators from industry, because uh, you're going back to do it again, or is it? That yeah, we are building going, that's on right. It? So we just uh, going to actually repeat uh, the similar type of tests uh, uh, at all FAA six test sites sometime in April, where we will study beyond visual line of sight using the UTM construct that we have developed, and get further data as to how we how UTM supports these beyond visual line of sight operations. And what's the steps after that? So after you've done this research, you've run these tests. Is it then going into a process of transferring that technology to the FAA, or are there also international partners, or, or how, how does that work? Yeah, what are the so next phases? Our, our main partner in this um, uh, government partner is FAA, where all the lessons learned get translated into the requirements, and we develop a prototype uh, for the FAA, and we transition all that um, package of um, lessons learned, the requirements, as well as a prototype to FA. And the plan is to, with the research transition team between FA and NASA, that get implemented um, and instituted into the operations from the FA side. Uh, we still haven't finished the research yet, so this is the last uh, final leg that we, I'm describing, which will happen in around 2019, 2020. Uh, we have a number of, um, a uh, very comprehensive set of actually collaborators from industry where we study industry capabilities and possibilities. So mm -hmm. the, the cool thing about this project is it's really collaborative innovation. We work with FA for making sure that the safety needs uh, are balanced properly and we make sure we work with industry to continuously and, innovate. And they're and gonna go use it. And they're gonna be the ones, yeah. Uh, so they're spending a lot of energy and, and resources in building technologies, so we want to take full advantage of that. So we have over 200 collab industry and academic oh, wow. uh, collaborators. So this has been really the exciting part, this, this whole um, notion of collaborative innovation. I guess then even after you after you transfer the technology, I'd imagine there's still some research and updating, Not, I mean, for the unmanned aircraft management system, but not too dissimilar of what we're doing for the manned aircraft, airplanes that are going on now. We're still doing research 
for the sure, FAA yeah. for in that realm. So even once you transfer this over, it's not like you get to wash your hands and be done with it. No, certainly not. No, the, research you, and we fixing. will continue to improve the operations. We'll continue to improve because the technology is also moving fast and improving. Uh, things will change uh, on the drone side as well. So we see the U.S. traffic management is collaborative. Basically, traffic management, aerospace management kind of approach will be used for all on could be used for all uncontrolled airspace. So whether oh. it's regardless of what um, size of the vehicle, the weight of the vehicle, or height or altitude they operate. It could be 60,000 feet and up where the Facebook and uh, Google's Loon and other vehicles mm -hmm. will operate. You could con possibly think about using this approach of uh, exchanging information to each other about areas of operation and staying clear and managing by contingencies rather than individual vehicles yeah. is an approach that we are uh, researching and that's our primary focus and we can we postulate that approach if successful at the low altitude could also apply to the other altitudes. See if it then yeah. applies higher. Yeah. Well I even think of with the current aviation system now I mean planes still do have an autopilot function of some sort there's obviously obviously the current air traffic control system has elements of stuff and you guys are just kind of taking it to the next right step of being right unmanned. exactly yeah so idea is to basically uh, use the low altitude and unmanned aircraft systems as a starting point uh, so okay. to speak and when the density is low uh, and the risk is low. So this is why we are starting with the low risk areas, remote areas, and slowly increase these operations and the density. Uh, the FAA's forecast that was done by Teal Groups um, is suggesting that we will have about 7 million uh, small unmanned aircraft systems by 2020, and 2.6 will be commercial. So before we get to that point, we want to have a system and solution set and operational procedures ready yeah. so that uh, the entire airspace will be ready to keep up with the demands of the future. That's exciting. So for people who wanted to get, want to get more information, understand where you are in the research, where's probably the best place to go? Yeah, we have a great website, uh, utm.arc.nasa.gov. Okay. Uh, we also have annual conventions. We did the first convention on U.S. traffic management 2015 mm -hmm. uh, in Silicon Valley. And the second one was done very recently in November 2016 in Syracuse. Uh, we haven't decided where we are going to do this uh, mm -hmm. in 2017. There is also Global UTM Association. Uh, they have a website, utm.aero. They are also looking to harmonize the UTM kind of principles across the uh, world. So it really is a lot exciting, a lot, lot of exciting things happening. A lot of companies are coming up with UTM instantiations. Uh, the, one of the fundamental things we do in UTM is uh, roles responsibilities. So we have a role for FAA as the regulator. So they yeah. set the rules, where to go, where not to go, which airspace is open. If the president is coming in town, certain airspace gets blocked, things yeah. like that. Then there is a U.S. operator, so the operator or the end user who decides to do some basically use case, whether it's delivery, whether it's uh, surveillance, uh, or taking pictures, things like that. Uh, and the third um, 
role is the what we call USS, US service supplier. So they could do your flight planning, they can give you 3D oh, maps, okay. they could provide you wind or weather data. So some companies want to be both. Uh, big companies may want to be the service supplier to themselves because they will have large fleet and a lot of diverse operations. And others may want to buy these services from someone else. So there are a number of companies that offer would offer those services. And the interesting part of UTM is uh, the way we structure this collaboration is through the data exchanges. So these operators connect into the UTM that allows them to send information or access information pushed by FIA as a regulator about airspace. And then the USS to USS can exchange information with each other Mm -hmm. about their areas of operation. So it's collaboratively basically making sure that we stay clear of each other's areas and in enhance safety. Do you also find that, are there other countries that are working on variations of yeah, this? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the UTM is, uh, surprisingly, uh, UTM is taken um, uh, taken up by pretty much um, all major nations so far. We've seen interest uh, from New Zealand, UK, Australia, Singapore, Japan, Korea. Because imagine there's some collaborations or yeah. stuff that they're learning that people can share. Yeah, so the goal is we have a couple of uh, international countries that uh, are working with us, and we are sharing lessons through right agreements and such. But uh, there's a lot of interest at the global level um, in this, and we, we are looking forward to seeing how these operations can be harmonized across the world so that vehicles built regardless of which country of origin can be used mm-hmm. uh, in the UTM environment anywhere in the world. You know. Excellent. So for anybody who's interested on these upcoming tests that are going to be happening, you can keep your eyes open on nasa.gov slash Ames, also uh, nasa.gov arrow. And also we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So if anybody has questions for PK about drones or air traffic management, some of the stuff that he's working on, feel free to hit us up and we'll we'll have PK get to you. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. This was awesome.